Well, I get this question a lot. How do I get more plugged in? How do I get involved? How do I do more here at Highlands? How do I serve more here at Highlands? How can I be more a part of things? And what that question really means is twofold. The person really wants to benefit others. They want to serve others. That's a good thing. But they also want to enjoy the benefits of the church themselves. And that's what church membership and church commitment is. It's, it's a commitment to serve others, but also be served. It's always a, a two-way relationship. I, I'm frequently surprised. I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm frequently surprised when I go to visit someone in the hospital or go to visit someone at home who's having a hard time, how I think I'm going to walk in there and be the one that I'm encouraging them, but then they in turn encourage me instead. It's that mutual encouragement, that mutual benefit that we seek to do in the church. And so for us as large, what does that mean? And how do we practically do that in the church? And I pray that that is what God's Word will show us this morning in the book of Romans. We are nearing the end of our just a few weeks left. And Paul is kind of throwing in a lot of things here at the end. Last week, we looked at a few things the church should know. And you could call this message, and I think I actually did, what the church should know, part two. There are more things that the church should know and do. Paul's starting to land the plane, and as he begins his initial descent, he wants to clarify for them what the church should be doing. The church has to know what it should be doing. We know that it's good to care for one another. We know that Christ alone transforms us. We know that we build only on the foundation of the, the apostles and the gospels. And this week, Paul is going to continue telling them more things that the church should be doing. And so remember, Paul's never been to this church. This church was probably planted maybe by people who were at Pentecost from all over the region, saw the Holy Spirit fall, got saved that moment, heard the gospel preached, God saved them, and maybe they went back to Rome to establish this church themselves. But nevertheless, Paul's heard of them. And Paul loves them, and he's, he's trying to nurture them from afar, but still he wants to get there. Rome is a major city, a major metropolitan city, strategic, very powerful, over a million people there, and you better believe that Paul wants to get there, but he hasn't been there yet. Paul, called to preach to the Gentiles, has taken them under his wing, writing to them in this letter extensively about how they should grow and mature as a church. Loves the church at Rome. He's proud of them. He really wants to visit them. But so far, he hasn't been able to. And this is nothing new. So if we actually jump back first to start, I want you to see what he says. We're coming to the end now. Sometimes you will see biblical writers say the same thing at the beginning of the letter that they do at the end of the letter. We call that an inclusio in the biz, or bookends if you want to go slang, right? Romans chapter 1, look at verse 8. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may know, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that as we may be both mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks 
and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is how he starts his letter. And I want you to keep that in mind as we now parachute into our text in Romans 15, starting at verse 22. See if this sounds familiar. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for the work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. This has not changed throughout the whole letter. From the beginning to the end, he loves them, he's encouraged by them, he wants to see them. But now, in our passage in Romans 15, he says that he actually can do this. He said, listen, I've been trying to get there, but I couldn't get there. Now he says, guess what? Now's the time. I can now get here. And we have to kind of pick that apart. Last week, remember, Paul said he fulfilled the gospel ministry in the whole region, from one end of the, one end of the region to the other. He's fulfilled it. He said, I did the work that God has for me. And so now we see in this passage that that ties in with now I am able to finally get there and even has a plan. He's been wanting to come to them for years. He has a plan. He says, I'm going to visit you all on my way to Spain. I'm going to stop at Spain. I'm going to hang with you guys. You're going to help me on my journey. And then I'm going to jump over to Spain. You know what we need? We need a map. Map would be great right now. And so, oh, son, foiled my plan. The one time I remember my pointer. Oh, there it is, sort of. All right, so Paul is writing over here in Corinth. Here, I'll show you guys some love here over here, too. Come on now. Sorry, guys. Corinth is over here in Greece. This is the end of his third missionary journey. And so his third missionary journey has taken him all the way through all the churches in Asia Minor and up through Macedonia, and now he's in Corinth. Most theologians think he's writing the letter at Romans from Corinth while he's parked there before he sets his way back all the way. This is, again, the end of his third journey. It started in Antioch. He visited all those churches that we just pointed to. He has an objective for his visit to Rome. Besides hanging out and swapping gospel stories and being encouraged, he wants to support, he wants them to support his journey to Spain. So Rome's over here, way up here in Italy. I made a nice little red box for you guys. And Spain's over in the parking lot, somewhere over there, okay? So you can see how strategic that would be. I'll go to Italy, I'll have some pasta and enjoy myself for a while, and then I will jump over to Spain and start my ministry in Spain. He wants them to support them, and he's being very, very clear about that. He's like, you can encourage me, I can encourage you, and you can send me off. And that means support. That means supplies. That means finances. That means prayer. That means partnership. Most theologians think that Paul is strategically using Rome as a springboard, as a headquarters for a new mission to Europe. This is Paul like 4.0. Paul thinking, okay, now I'm going to Europe, and I need the church at Rome to help me do that. It's a relational trip as well. Look at the end back in Romans 15 in verse 24 says this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He says, 
This is not just, you know, hi, I'm here, my name's Paul. Perhaps you saw my PowerPoint presentation of how you can support me. I'm really looking for 10 people to really get in at $100. No, it's not that. There is fundraising, but he also says, I want to be with you. I want to enjoy each other's company for a while. It's not just about securing support. He loves them. He wants to be mutually encouraged. Literally, the word is filled up. I want to stop and be filled up by you guys. And I want to fill you up in the gospel as well. And so first point is this. The church should mutually encourage each other. The church should mutually encourage each other. By mutual, I mean that when we encourage others, in return, we are encouraged. And we're all in need of a bit of encouragement and filling up, aren't we? In 2024 America, we all know about being empty. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, whatever the case may be, life has a way of draining our batteries. And we need to be filled up again. What should recharge us? Of course, ultimately, God through the Holy Spirit, should recharge us, should strengthen us. But of course, how does that practically look like? That practically looks like the church. Practically looks like us as we come together. We should be literally filling each other up. This should be like a filling station before the next week starts. We should come in here a little bit low, and we should leave filled up with encouragement and the Holy Spirit in God's word in each other. That's why we do it on the first day of the week. Another reason why we do it on the first day of the week. We get ready for the week at hand. Every care group, every Bible study should be a little mini filling station where we get filled up with each other. Highlands is a happy bunch. We are genuinely happy to see each other. Every Sunday, this place is filled with love for each other and smiles and hugs, and it is a beautiful thing. And we should continue to do that. When we see brothers and sisters that we've maybe not seen for a long time, isn't that sweet as well? That maybe we've not seen them in a while, but we catch up with them. We feel maybe our missionaries. We hear of their, their work, and we're encouraged. Even now, with our social media world, we can communicate and have relationships. I'll still use quotes for that because you can't a real relationship without maybe even meeting them. You have kindred spirits. People are encouraged you. I have people that I hope I meet one day that are online friends, right? Pastors or writers or authors or scholars or something that I would love to meet one day and have corresponded with online. And that's encouraging. We hear about mission work again. We hear about the gospel going out. We hear about interactions with our family and friends and people and brothers and sisters in the church and how they're sharing the gospel or God did this or whatever. We're encouraged and they're encouraged by us. So how do we mutually encourage? I'll give you three quick points of application here, how we mutually encourage. Thankfulness, thoughtfulness, and intentionality. First, thankfulness. When you see your brother and sister in Jesus Christ, are you thankful for them? Does thankfulness well up in your heart? I am so thankful just for you. And all that God is doing in your life. This is, this is the sentiment that Paul expressed several times in several of his letters. He already said that in chapter 1 of Romans, but we see it again maybe in another example in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's writing to them. Do you ever start a text message 
or a card or an email to a brother or sister that says, I thank God for you. That would be a way to mutually encourage one another for sure. Are we thankful for each other? Second, thoughtfulness. Do we think of others? We're really good at thinking of ourselves. Do we think of others? Do we think of their needs? How are they doing? What are they celebrating? Where they may be struggling? How we can communicate with them through prayer? You ever walk away and somebody just kind of barfs all over you? Not literally. Verbally, right? And you walk away and it's like, I didn't say a word about myself. They didn't ask me how I was doing. They didn't care. They just talked about themselves the whole time when we walked away. It's human nature, but still, that's why we got to work against it. That's original sin. We've got to say, no, 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 don't just think about yourself. Don't just talk about yourself. Ask them how they are doing. Be interested and involved in them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So we have thankfulness, we have thoughtfulness, but we also have intentionality. Highlands is not, nor shall we ever be, or should we ever be, a social club. It's not a common interest group. It's not because we all have kids this age, or it's because we all love this sport, or we all like that activity. That's not what draws us together. We should have relationships, of course. We should love each other. But the intentionality in our community has to come through our union with Christ Jesus. That's where our intentionality has to come from. Sure, we love each other. And we've got to fight this too, don't we? Because sometimes on Sundays, we just go to the people we know. We go to our friends, right? We have to fight that. We're also really good at that. I got to say, you're really good at that. You see a new person, you usually pounce on them. If you're new, hopefully you didn't feel pounced on today. Hopefully you felt approached and welcomed. But that requires thought to be like, don't just default to the people that I know. Look for somebody maybe I don't know. Look for somebody I don't click with. Encouraging each other intentionally. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. We want to intentionally stir each other up towards love and good works. We also want to intentionally stir each other up and encourage each other in our fight against sin. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. That means all the time. So that none of you may be harmed by the deceitfulness of sin. It's, it's that intentionality. We want to encourage each other in the faith. We want to encourage each other towards love and good works. We want to encourage one another to fight the good fight against sin. That's our intentional encouragement. Thankfulness, thoughtfulness, and intentionality. And the church is designed to be that place of thankful, thoughtful, intentional, mutual encouragement. We are filled up that way as we come here, encouraged by others, and we seek to encourage others as well. But what about practical needs? I mean, those things are fine and all, but what about actual, practical, material, physical needs? Remember, Paul's already laid the groundwork for this, for what he will ask them, to help them get where he needs to go in Spain, but he still does want to see them. But first, he says, I have a really important trip to make. Look back in our main text in Romans 15, starting in verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 
for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were sensing a but was coming in what he was first saying, here's the but. He's, I really want to get there. Now's the time for me to get there. My work is clear. I'm coming there. But first, I've got to go back to Jerusalem, which we need another. We need our map again just, just to look at that for a second. Because this isn't, you know, Rome's over here. He's right here in Corinth. Oh, there you go, guys. He's right here in Corinth. He could just go bip right over there. I think if it were me, I'd be like, okay, let's just go bip. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. I need to go back to Jerusalem. Back to what? Back all the way to Jerusalem. Now, notice this is an actual map of his third missionary journey. He's taking the express bus this time. He's not going local. He's not stopping at every stop, again, at the churches, but he is taking the express bus, but he still has to go thousands of miles back to Jerusalem to deliver money, to deliver supplies. I mean, you're the Apostle Paul. Can't you delegate that task? Can't you have someone else do that? Get a flunky or an intern or somebody to go bring it all the way back to Jerusalem? Why do you have to go all the way back to Jerusalem? Like, Rome's like, come on, bro. Like, you're so close. Come over here. We miss you. We need you. We want to meet you. This is no small trip. It will take months or a year or more until he gets to Rome. We don't know what the weather would be like or the ocean or sailing or whatever. He's going all the way back to headquarters, and then you, you got it, all the way back to Rome. That is an exceptional amount of time. Why is he doing that? What is so important? Verse 25 tells us he is bringing aid to the saints. When we talk about saints, we don't mean old dead guys. We mean Christians. If you're a Christian here today, you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ in full faith, congratulations, you are a saint. Paul calls them saints. Again, in the beginning of the book, in Romans 1.7, he addresses the letter to those who are in Rome, loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's bringing aid to the saints, to Christians, at the church in Jerusalem. Probably money, food, other supplies, physical, material need. Where did all that come from? Verse 26 tells us, came from all the other churches that he had been through in Asia Minor and Macedonia. So places like Ephesus, Corinth, right? Derby, Lystra, all of those places, Acts, Acts Brothers, we know that well because we're all in this on Wednesday nights, right? That's what he's doing. He's getting that. He's collected all of that, and now he's going to bring all of the money, the food, the whatever it might be, back to the church in Jerusalem. We know from history that in the mid-40s, there was a severe famine in Palestine, we also know about this time that the Jewish Christians were starting to fall out of favor, especially with the bosses in Jerusalem, the muckety-mucks, the Pharisees and the scribes, but we also know that they were falling out of favor with the Roman government. So put those two things together. No food in the region and also not very valued in the region. 
Do you think the church at Jerusalem was struggling? It was absolutely struggling. And not just with discouragement, with life and death, with people starving, with people's families not being fed. And so, yes, this is colossally important. And why should those churches that have given all of this money and food and supplies, why would they care? Why would they want to support the church in Jerusalem? Like, they're really far away. They're on the other side of the ocean there. I don't really care so much what happened. I mean, let's care about our church. But look at what he says in verse 27. He says, guess what? The vast majority of all those churches in Asia Minor and Macedonia, all those places Paul collected, all that stuff, they were Gentile churches. The church in Jerusalem was, you guessed it, mostly Jewish Christians. And we've seen time and time again throughout the book that we have these two groups of people in the church, Jews and Gentiles. So guess what? This is just not a normal collection. This is not something that just says, here, we got this for you. This is the Gentile church ponying up and Paul going all that way back to give it to the Jewish church. Why? To show that they're one in Christ. To show that there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. They're happy to do it. Paul says, why are they happy to do it? Because guess what? They inherited, they, they were grafted, the Gentiles were grafted into the people of God. We've got to continue to remember that. Us Gentiles, we weren't a part of this. It came through the Jews. The family of God came up through Israel. We were grafted into it. So they're saying, hey, of course I'll help them. I wasn't even a part of this. I wouldn't even be here. I wouldn't even be a believer if it wasn't for the Jewish church, if it wasn't for Israel, if it wasn't for Jesus who came through Israel. Of course, verse 27 says, if they have this spiritual blessing from them, meaning the Gentiles, why would they hesitate in giving them material blessings? They've given us so much spiritually. Why would we hesitate to give them material blessings? And Paul says in verse 28, that when I've given them this special contribution from the Gentiles to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, then I will turn around, I will come back, I will go to Rome, and then I will go to Spain. And again, we see in verse 29, the restatement of his anticipation being filled up again. There's our word. Being filled up again with all the blessings of Christ when he visits. But until then... He's got a really important mission that he has to do. What's the mission? Helping the church at Jerusalem, unifying the church, doing so at great personal expense to himself. I mean, really, Paul? You can't just Venmo that? No, he's going to go there himself. And so the second thing the church should do, the church should go to great lengths to help each other. The church should go to great lengths to help each other. Helping unifies I can think of when we moved into this building, it looked a lot different than it does today. It smelled a lot different than it does today, especially downstairs. But we rolled up our sleeves and we worked. We pulled up the carpet. We cleaned things that hadn't been cleaned in a really, really long time. We worked together. We sweated together. It unifies us. You know that if you've worked with people closely, you're unified with them. Highlands in our history, we have worked together closely. And this contribution, again, of the Gentile churches for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem is a major sign of unity. This was no ordinary collection. Dr. Schreiner writes, the giving of their substance signified Gentile inclusion into the people of God. The acceptance of the gift by Jewish Christians was therefore of tremendous significance because it symbolized the solidarity of Jews and Gentiles and of the people of God 
And the unity of Jews and Gentiles is one of the major themes of Romans. Paul's like, I'm walking this out. I've been telling you about it for chapters and chapters and chapters now, but here's me doing it. I have worked, I have collected from all of these spots that I have gone to, and now I'm going to go all the way back. When, believe me, I would much rather be in Rome, sipping on an espresso with you guys, but I'm going to go back to them to show them how much the church loves them and how much they are unified in the gospel. Stop and think. When was the last time that you went to great lengths to help a brother or a sister or the church in general? I know, I'm preaching to the choir here because Highlands is made up of very, very generous people with their time, their gifts, their talents, and finances. But it's worth asking, would I go to great lengths to help my brothers and sisters at Highlands? What would that look like? Galatians 6.10 tells us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's like when I get a phone call from someone who needs help or something happened, if it's a member, I'm pretty much dropping everything and going to help that person depending on the need. We should feel that way for each other. No, this is my brother or sister. They need me. I got to go. I got to help them. What does it mean, then, Paul says in Galatians, to do good to everyone, especially those in the church? Many ways we could do this. I'll just give you four practical ways. First, it means being involved in the church. Actually, being here, being a member, being committed, being involved in the church. Perhaps you're watching on live stream. You haven't come physically yet. Consider this your invitation to be involved here. I love that when people come here and I give them the five-minute elevator speech about what Highlands is and what they're like. And they know we've been watching you for months. We, we, we're, here, we're here now. Love that. But come. Get involved. Commit to membership. Second, it means using your gifts and talents to serve. Serving humbly. Submitting our personal preferences to the actual needs at hand. I guarantee there were people downstairs in Kingdom Kids this morning that were not planning on doing where they're, what they're serving right now. Or maybe there were people that were not planning on serving at all and maybe sitting here in the service and now they're serving down there in Kingdom Kids because we needed them. Right? Am I right? Yeah. Totally right. Good guess. Happens every week though. There are people that serve selflessly here. But church, again, with encouragement, this is a tricky, tricky one because even Highlands can fall into the 20-80 rule. You familiar with that? Where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work? It's just natural. Like we, again, think about ourselves and we kind of have that idea, eh, somebody else will do it. Be that somebody else that does it. And so... How do we then serve each other? How do we go to great lengths to help? First, it means being involved in the church. Second, it means using your gifts and talents to serve. Third, it means giving financially. And again, you guys are great at this. You're very, very generous at this. I'm preaching to the choir. That's why when we talk about what we're doing next and whatever that looks like, I'm not really worried. Because if the Lord wants us to build, we'll build. And the money will be there. We have generous people. And the Lord will fund his work. Fourth, it means giving time and resources for the good of the church. I can, I can recall when we were moving to Vernon, 2005, moving up from Passaic County to Sussex County, right? Moving from West Millie up to Vernon now. 
So we're up here. We knew nobody. We closed, or we were ready to close on our house. We had everything we own in a U-Haul, a smaller U-Haul, because they didn't have the bigger U-Haul. So we had stuff crammed in there. We had stuff in our cars. We had stuff in our friends' cars. And I remember we got taken in by a couple from Green Pond to spend the night there. And I remember that we had stuff. We had, we had clothes. Like, all of my clothes were in their garage, just, like, hung up from one, like, clothesline. I just remember going to sleep at night. I'm like, I have my wife, my kids, who are much smaller back then. Everything I own is right here with brothers and sisters who took me in. And it was just such a cool thing. That's practically helping each other in those situations. They fed us. I remember for some reason it was wagon wheels and ragu. Remember that? They fed us. There was pie. There was definitely pie. It's coming back to me now. I went to sleep. You know, think of that as a husband. I went to sleep like, technically, I'm actually homeless right now. I don't own a home. Right? I will in a few hours. But just to be taken in by them, it speaks to the generosity. It speaks to them giving time and resources for the good of the church. But imagine church being in other hostile environments around the world, being in the 1040 window, being in places where it's illegal to be a Christian, being in places where you will get killed if they know you're a Christian, and being taken in by someone in the church, literally saving your life. Think about that. Think about the weight of that. It also means or speaks generally to the truth that Christians should care about the poor in general. We're not just pushing everybody to the side and saying, well, if you're not in Highlands Bible Church, so I'd like to help, but can't. We're not saying that at all. We should care about the poor in general. I had Alyssa and Doreen uh, from my brother's place on the podcast last week discussing this very thing. What does the Bible say about helping the poor, caring about the poor? We need to do that as we are able and as we see the need. But church, particularly, we should be going to great lengths to help each other. And one of, what is one of the best ways to mutually encourage one another and help each other? Prayer. And that's where Paul ends up. Look at Romans 15 and verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's another fake ending from Paul. Like, if I said that, you guys would be grabbing your stuff and ready to go. No, psych, I'm still writing. Paul drops the I appeal to you again. This is the second of three times that he will do it. See, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brother, mercies of God to present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. To appeal means to urge or strongly, urge strongly or exhort. This is not like a if you have time kind of thing. This is not like it'd be really good if you could think about kind of thing. This is like, no, do this, please. This would help me greatly. And what does he say to do? Pray. He says, strive together with me to God on behalf of me. He says, pray for me. Pray for what? Three things he tells us in the text. First, in verse 31, he tells us that he wants to be delivered from the hands of the unbelievers in Judea. And what does that mean? 
Well, as you might imagine, an ex-Pharisee like Paul, who has now converted to the other side and has gone all the way around the horn planting churches and telling people about Jesus Christ, their mortal enemy, coming back to Jerusalem, not the most popular guy in town, and really has a target on his back. And so he prays for protection, literal, physical protection. In fact, he is public enemy number one. And spoiler alert, as soon as, because it's not in here, spoiler alert, as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, he's arrested. They don't waste much time in persecuting Paul. And this leads to a whole other phase of his life, which unfortunately will end in his martyrdom. That's what Paul's going. And he has an idea that that's going to happen. So yeah, you better believe they have to pray for him because it's a real threat and it actually happened. Another spoiler alert is that Paul doesn't actually make it to the Roman church then. He doesn't actually make it to Spain. History tells us that he was executed before he could fulfill any of those plans that he had. And so during his trip back around the horn to get to Jerusalem, he stops in Miletus and meets with the Ephesian elders in a very, very powerful time, probably on the beach while Paul is getting ready to leave. Acts 20, look at verse uh, 22. He says, and now behold, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. They're like, this is a bad idea, Paul. Don't go. Let us take the gift. We can do it. He says, no. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, and not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. How to like that as an impression from the Holy Spirit? You're going to go there, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to be afflicted, but still go. And Paul's going, and he's being obedient. <clears throat> so yeah, he needs prayer for safety when he gets to Jerusalem. Second thing he asks prayer for, back in our passage in Romans, he requests prayer that the Jewish Christians would accept the offering from the Gentile churches, right? It's kind of dicey. Like, these are all these gifts from the Gentiles. You know, your mortal enemies for like four or five decades of your life. Here is what they gave you. Do you think there's a chance that they could throw that back in his face and say, we don't want this stuff from them? He says, please pray, not only for my physical safety, but pray that the gift is accepted and pray that it builds the unity of the church. Again, saints, his service for Jerusalem, meaning all the contributions he collected in his missionary journeys, that they would be acceptable to the saints, to the Christians. Remember, this one is a big deal. Not only does the church in Jerusalem need the supplies, it is a gesture from all those Gentile churches that we are one in Christ. And Paul hopes that they see it that way. Third, he asked for prayer that they would pray that Paul would, in fact, make it back to, to Rome to meet them. Verse 32 says, that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And he closes with a quick, quick prayer in verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Third point, I'm sure you can guess. The church should earnestly pray for each other. The church should earnestly pray for each other. Probably one of the most basic things that you can think about about what a Christian is supposed to do is pray. Calvin says, faith unaccompanied by prayer to God cannot be genuine. 
There's no such thing, he says, as a prayerless Christian. Maybe we should ask the question, well, what is prayer? Westminster defines it as this. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for the things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We're lifting these requests up to God. And you see how they framed it there? Framed it, we do that in prayer meeting, first Sunday of every month, 6 p.m., in the law office, just throwing it out there. We start with adoration, and we go to confession, we go to thanksgiving, and then we present our gifts to God, or our requests to God, rather. Why would we pray? That's definitely on the list of top 10 pastoral questions that I think I've gotten over the years. Why would I pray? I'll give you five reasons, but there are many, many more. First, straight up, prayer is commanded by God. We see the model for prayer in many areas in Scripture, but 1 Thessalonians 5.17 simply says, pray without ceasing. We're commanded in Scripture to pray. Jesus models prayer as he spent many, many hours in, in prayer. We saw him going overnight sometimes in prayer, and he gave us a model for praying in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7, Jesus talking says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do or unbelievers do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, set aside, set apart be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are commanded to pray in Scripture. Jesus gives us the model for how to pray in Scripture. Second, prayer shows us our dependence on God. Prayer is literally the language of dependence. Arthur Pink said, Prayer is not designed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need, but it's designed as a confession to him of our sense of need. We don't go to God with that list that said, okay, God, glad you're here today. We can get started with our 9 a.m. prayer. Sorry, I was a little late. If you'll review the five points of the stuff I need you to do for me today and let me know the status of them in a quick email, that'd be great. Thanks. I'll see you later. No, we're going to God because we have a sense of our need for God. Prayer is the language of dependence. We go back to the Lord's Prayer. We see Jesus modeling that we depend on God for our daily bread. Everything we need, everything we have is from God. Our next breath of air, the next beat of our heart, the fact that we woke up this morning from sleep, we need all of that from God. We live on his earth. He created us. You know what's saying when we don't pray? It's saying, I got it. When we don't pray, we're saying, I got it all myself. I have everything I need, or I will get it. I don't really need you, God. Think about that, and I hope you know that I am as convicted as hopefully you are right now. When we don't pray, we're saying we're independent. We can do it. Prayer is the language of dependence. Third, prayer brings us into close communion with God. Stop and think about it. We get to talk to God. We get to talk to the creator of the universe, and he hears us. Non-Christians don't have that, that right, that privilege. 
Why? Isaiah 59 says their sins have made a separation between them and God so that he does not hear them. Christians, God's children, can call on God's Father. It's one of the greatest things that we can do for unbelieving friends and relatives is we can actually pray for them. And it is in close communion with God. Think about that. We get to talk to God. We get to be with God in prayer. We commune with God in prayer. The great Puritan John Owen wrote, Our prayers can be considered two ways. As a spiritual duty required of us, which they are. We just looked at that. But also, too, as a means of retaining communion with God, whereby we, are, we sweetly ease our hearts in the bosom of the Father and receive refreshing tastes of his love. It's not just a list of things that we want God to do for us. It's spending time with our Heavenly Father who loves us. That's that communion that we have. The fifth, prayer shows us God's care for us. Scripture tells us in Ephesians 6, and I like the CSB here, he cares about all of our requests. It says, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and every request. Isn't it nice that we don't have to filter our prayers with God? We say what's on our heart. We say what we need. And we have the Holy Spirit. We saw that earlier on in Romans, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, correcting even our prayers, showing the Father really what we need. Because guess what? What we think we need, sometimes we don't actually need. And God has better plans. Say, well, I was going to give you the other job, but you prayed for that job. So, oh, well, God, what you want? No, he, he knows what we need. He gives us what we need. And sometimes that's not good. Or sometimes we think that's not good. Because sometimes what we, what we get is hard. But God is always working. But what about when God does not answer those prayers, or he does and says no. I mean, let's, let's be real here. This is Paul begging the Roman church to pray that he'd be kept safe from the Jews in Jerusalem and that he would make it back to Rome. And God said no to both. He never made it to Rome, and he never made it, period, because he was executed by the Jews through the Romans once again. What do we do when God says no? Paul technically wasn't kept safe from the Jews, and he was executed, and he never made it back to Rome. He definitely never made it to Spain, we think. I mean, wouldn't God answer a prayer from the apostle Paul? I mean, talk about gospel mojo. I mean, that guy wrote like half the New Testament. You would think that if he asked for something, that God would be like, well, it's apostle Paul, express lane, yes. No, he says no to both of those requests. And Paul knew it was coming, too. Go back to Acts chapter 20 and that, that tearful scene on the beach with the elders of Ephesus begging him not to go. Acts 20, 24, he says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the grace of God. He says, guess what? Yeah, it's probably going to happen. What you're so worried about with me going back to Jerusalem, probably going to happen. But I don't care. What I care about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I care about. Elsewhere in Philippians, he's like, what? You're going to kill me? Gain. I get to go to heaven. That's what he says. That's that. When we pray, guys, we've got to be okay with God's answer. When we pray, this is a man that we see that is okay with God's answer. 
Who wouldn't want that prayer? I mean, well, God, keep me alive? I mean, that's a pretty basic prayer. And yet he has this sense that that's not going to happen. And he's okay with it. How do we get to that level of faith? That's a, that's, I'd be like, nope, uh, let's think about this. Maybe somebody else can go to, to Jerusalem. I'll send someone else. But he's okay with God's answer. We've got to be okay with God's answer. Think back, of course, to Jesus himself in the garden, asking his heavenly father, please, is there any way that this cup may pass from me? Can we do this any other way without me going to the cross? And what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. That's how to pray, people. That's how to pray. We ask. We can ask for anything we want. We've also got to say, not my will, but your will. We've got to hold it loosely. And is there any bigger examples than two people, Jesus and Paul, losing their lives? We think about that. We've got to be okay with God's answer. Why? Because we trust him. Because his will is better than our ideas of our will. And therefore, we need to be praying that way for each other here at Highlands. So let's try and pull all this together here. We should mutually encourage each other. We should go to great lengths to help each other. We should earnestly pray for each other. In other words, this simple big idea, the church should support each other in the faith. The church should support each other in the faith. Ask yourself, if you were away from Highlands for a time, could you write to the church the things in this letter? Could you write to your brothers and sisters with so much love and say, I want to see you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be encouraged by you. I want to encourage you. I want to tell you about all the things that God has been doing. Would you long to see your brothers and sisters in Christ to mutually encourage each other? Would you feel the Spirit's compulsion to go to great lengths to be helping each other? And would you, no matter where you are, earnestly pray for each other? These are three key ways that God gives us this morning in his word to how we can support each other in the faith. Let's pray that we can do that with each other. And let's pray that the God would do that work through his spirit in our church today. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the practicality of this word. And as we dig in even to the, the history behind it and what happened to Paul, Lord, it just hits so much more powerfully. Help us, Lord, to not think only of ourselves. That's why you tell us to love each other as much as we love ourselves. Pray that we would remember that we have to love you first with everything that we have in order to love each other as they should be loved. Pray that we would have that other's focus that Paul does. Pray that especially in the church, Lord, that we would seek to mutually encourage each other, that we would go to great lengths to help each other, and that we would strive and labor in prayer for each other. And Lord, in those areas where maybe we don't get the response that we want, that we would trust you because you are still good. Father, be glorified in us as we seek to support each other in the faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.